Well, this morning we're going to be reading from Exodus chapter 15, so you can turn there in your Bibles with me. We're going to be starting in verse 22, that's Exodus 15, verse 22, and just as a little background for the text, at this point in Exodus, God has um, brought his people up out of Egypt, they've crossed the Red Sea, they've made it to the other side by the, by the pure grace and the wonder of God, and, and following their salvation, they sing this majestic, wonderful, glorious song of Moses um, in, in the passage previously, extolling the name of God, praising the name of God. And then we arrive at our passage in verse 22, and it says this, Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter, and therefore it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute. And a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all of his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord, your healer. Then they came to Elam, where there were twelve springs of water, and seventy palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. Father God, we bless your name this morning. And we, we want to see you exalted, not only in our praises, but as we come to the word, as we hear what you're about to tell us, Lord. Holy Spirit, I pray you would illuminate for us, and I pray you would stir up within us hearts of worship and praise. You are a good God. You are a great God, unlike any other, worthy of all of our praise, our lives, Lord. And so I just ask that in these precious moments we spend hearing from your revelation to us, that you would change us, you would transform us into the image of our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray in his name. Amen. Amen. Horatio Spafford was born in 1823. And though he was a godly man who sought the Lord, he was a Presbyterian church elder, he was passionate about evangelism, the life that God allowed him to live was full of pain, heartache, and tragedy, the likes of which many of us couldn't understand. He and his wife were blessed with five children and a good life by earthly standards. However, in 1971, all of that began to change, 1871 rather, all of that began to change. They would lose their son to a battle with pneumonia. And in the same year, the Great Chicago Fire destroyed most of their livelihood and and threw them into financial ruin. And despite these devastating losses, they remained faithful to the Lord and the calling that he had upon their lives. They made the decision to travel as a family to England to help alongside of the evangelistic ministry of D.L. Moody. And excited for this next step in his journey, but delayed by matters of business, 
Horatio sent his wife and his four young daughters ahead of him on a ship. During that crossing, his, that, that ship was struck by another vessel and sank, drowning all four of his daughters. The telegram Horatio received from his wife, who had survived the accident, simply said, Saved alone, what should I do? I can't even begin to imagine the kind of pain that must have been going on at that moment for him. If you met a fellow brother in Christ residing in such a state, what would you say to him? I mean, what would there be to say in a moment like that? It doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? If God truly loves his children, if he truly is a God full of grace and mercy and compassion, then how can the life of a devoted child of God unravel like this? How can God allow for this? Why do, why do these things happen? The truth of the matter is that God indeed does allow and even ordain such things to come to pass. And as a child of God and a follower of Christ, it's normal for us when seeing something like this or experiencing something like this to not understand it. It's normal for us to feel in that moment, even though we know, we know, we know differently We feel because of the experiences we're going through that God really isn't compassionate, that God really isn't caring. If he's going to save us, deliver us, and and then throw us into a life of pain and trial. But it's happening all the time, isn't it? It happens all the time in the lives of faithful children of God. You can look around and see an immeasurable amount of devastation that we are still experiencing every day. And ultimately, as all things do, this comes from God. Our passage this morning is a good illustration of this kind of thing in action from the book of Exodus. Israel has just experienced this, this, the greatest and most iconic piece of salvation and deliverance that God performs in the entire Old Testament. He's led Israel out of slavery into Egypt through the waters of the Red Sea. And not only that, but in doing so, he's closed the Red Sea upon their enemies. He's destroyed them on their behalf. And in the passage just before the one we're looking at, again, they're standing on the shore of the sea. And they're singing to God together. They're rejoicing God. They're, they're, they're bringing him adoration and praise. He's the only one who's worthy of this kind of thing. Yahweh, the great God of salvation. They sing, who is like the Lord? They aren't in Egypt anymore. But this is what God does next. They don't find themselves in the promised land. They aren't experiencing anything like the Nile River that they left even. Lush, fertile. What does God do? Through his servant Moses, God leads Israel, verse 22, from the Red Sea, and they went into the desert of Shur. So what does God do? He brings them nowhere. He brings them into the wilderness. It says, for three days they traveled in the desert without finding water. Three days in the desert without finding water. That's serious right? At this point, after having escaped the bondage of Egypt, having escaped the hostility of their enemies, having experienced the great salvation of God, they are now quickly staring death in the face again. 
And it doesn't get much easier in verse 23. It says that when they came to Marah, they could not drink its water because it was bitter. So they stumble upon this water source near death, and it's completely and utterly undrinkable. So what does God do? Where does God lead them? From the salvation of the Red Sea, he leads them to the desert, to bitter water. Now, this, I think, is a good illustration of the Christian life. God saves us, he redeems us, he delivers us, so we rejoice, we sing, we praise him, he's good, he's powerful, we love him, and, and we're still here, aren't we? We're still here. And before you know it, you find God leading you into places that you never wanted to go, you never thought you would be in. You start tasting those bitter waters, and some of us this morning know that experience right now more acutely than others. In, in the family of believers that, that I share life with on a regular basis, I know there's plenty of instances, and, and I'm sure it's the same with you as well, of, of devastation that's happening. Death, loss, grief, cancer, disease, Relationships deteriorating, broken dreams, shattered expectations, spiritual failures. These things are bitter, aren't they? They're bitter. But this is not, I want you to hear this, this is not a story of hopelessness. It is not a story of hopelessness. Far from it. This is a story about God making bitter water sweet. It's about God using pain for good. So how does he do this? How does God turn this around and use this pain for good? Well, fundamentally, we see this, that God's goal in these types of situations is to give faith to the faithless. God is trying to give faith to the faithless. So here's Israel, the seed of Abraham, descendants of Jacob, enslaved for 400 years, set free from their captivity in miraculous and awe-inspiring fashion, singing to Yahweh, who's revealed himself through his great acts of saving grace. And then three days later, I want you to notice that, 400 years of slavery, three days later, they forget everything. They forget everything. They're in the wilderness. They think they're going to die, and they grumble against God. It says in the passage that they grumble against Moses, but as we'll find out later on, they're really grumbling against God. Their faith is gone. And I want to explain for a second why this is such a serious thing. It's not a trivial thing, right? When we hear complaining or grumbling, we kind of treat it lightly, don't we? We think of of a child who's not getting what they want sort of thing. It's light. This is no trivial thing. The reason it's so serious is because Israel has stopped believing in the God of the Song of Moses that they've just sung about. They've forgotten who God is. These these are some of the words they sang to him. Who is like you, Lord? Majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders. God, you can work wonders. You can do anything. The Lord, they say, is my strength. He is my defense. He has become my salvation. Essentially what they sing in that song is, the Lord has saved me and he's going to continue to save me. That's what they end up singing. And then three days later, they're singing a different tune. 
Three days later, they've stopped believing it. They grumble. They don't groan. They grumble. Groaning is okay, isn't it? Groaning is different. Trials, hardships, they hurt us, don't they? And that's okay. Groaning, feeling the pain, that's okay. All of creation, Scripture tells, tells us, is groaning, longing for the expectation of Christ, the consummation of His kingdom, all things being made right again. But this isn't groaning that Israel is doing, it's grumbling. And when they do this, what they're saying is the opposite of what they were singing not long before. What they're saying, in effect, is, God, I don't trust you. Why are we here? You don't know what you're doing. You're not merciful. You're not compassionate. You're not powerful. You're not good. We're on our own here in the desert, and if we can't find a way out, then we don't get out. That's the heart of Israel right now in this moment. And in verse 25, we learn that God is testing them. God is testing them. The Lord issued a ruling, verse 25, an instruction for them and put them to the test. This gives us a bit of the motive of why God is leading them out into the desert. This is a common theme throughout the wilderness narrative, and it really strings along or strings together the next couple of passages in Exodus. But I think it's important for us to understand what God means by testing here. In what way is God testing Israel? Is he looking to learn something about them? It's like God doesn't know what's in Israel's heart, so he's trying to understand them. He's trying to learn something about them, how they're going to react. It's kind of like when a teacher gives a test at the end of the semester, right? He wants to understand how much you know. I don't think, I don't think this is what's going on. God should already know them, shouldn't he? He's God. So, so if he's not trying to understand them, is he trying to trap them? Sometimes that's what it feels like when we, when we uh, say things like God is testing, right? God's just almost waiting to drop his hammer of judgment. He's setting us up for failure and for punishment. I don't think that's a very good representation of God either. Now, when I see testing in this situation, it makes me think about Abraham, Makes me think about when God tested Abraham, when God finally gives him his son Isaac, and it says that God tests him by asking him to sacrifice Isaac. What God is doing in that moment is he's not trying to discover Abraham's heart. He's not trying to make Abraham fail or cause him to fail. What's he doing? He's trying to build something into Abraham. And I think that's what he's doing here with Israel too. God is building something into his people. He's trying to mature them. He's trying to grow them. The context of the verse in which the word test is used is one of teaching, instruction. God is not merely looking for information. He's not looking to trap his people in sin. He's teaching them. He's building into them. But what is he building into them? I think the short answer for that is faith. Faith. He's turning faithless people into people of faith. When God sends his people off into the wilderness, leading them to thirst, leading them to bitter waters, into a seemingly hopeless situation, he's not desiring for them to come out with better uh, wildlife skills. That's not his goal, right? He's not sending them off to go and, and get ready to, to accomplish their wilderness survival patch or whatever. Get better at finding water, surviving in the desert. 
That's not what God's doing. God has one thing on his mind. He has one thing he wants for them in this experience. He wants their impulse to become what it was when they crossed the Red Sea and experienced his salvation. He wants their impulse when their backs are up against the wall and they have nowhere to run to believe in the same God who delivered them from Egypt, who opened the sea, to believe that he's going to come through for them again. You know, it's easy for Israel when God opens up the Red Sea and they walk through and they're safe on the other side. It's easy for them in that moment to believe he can save, right? It's hard when they're in the wilderness about to die. But God wants to build into them that same impulse that it doesn't matter what, it, what circumstance you're in. God doesn't change. He's the same. Instead of running to fear, throwing out accusations against God and his character, he wants them to be people of peace with full confidence and dependence upon God. God, we can't see the way out of this situation, but we trust you. Why? Because we know that you are a God of power. We know you are filled with compassion. We know you are filled with grace. There is no one like you, Lord, so save us. That's the response he's looking for. He wants his children to take their eyes off of their circumstances and simply cry out to him. The children of Israel, they failed in this way, in this passage. And they're going to they're gonna fail again. But this is what God is building. We are stubborn and faithless creatures, aren't we? By nature, we're stubborn and faithless creatures. And because we are so stubborn and faithless, most of the time, there's only one true way that this kind of faith and dependence upon the Lord gets built into us. And that's pain and hardship. It's bitter water. God knows this. God, God knows this about us. And, and more importantly, God loves us enough to send us to those places. God doesn't delight in your pain. God doesn't delight in your suffering, but he loves you enough to send you there in order to build you up. Charles Spurgeon once said this, God brings, pe- brings his people often into straits and difficulties that being made conscious of their own weakness, they may be fitted to behold the majesty of God when he comes forth to work for their deliverance. That's what God does. He confronts us in these painful times with our own weaknesses so we have nowhere else to turn but to him. And so we're actually, the way he says it, fitted to behold the glory of God. And I love what he says after that. He says this, He whose life is one even and smooth path will see little of the glory of God for he has few occasions of self-emptying. Or if you'd rather hear it from the book of James, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Steadfastness. A man or a woman who holds tightly onto the truth of God, no matter what, God tests faith so that he can grow faith. 
He tests faith so that he can grow faith, so that he can give us an opportunity to throw ourselves upon his mercies in utter dependence when we have no other options. I don't know about you, but I want those kinds of, those, those occasions of self-emptying because I know that in them, God is waiting to draw me to himself. If you aren't familiar with who Horatio Spafford was, let me tell you that the loss of his first five children um, was not the end of his story. In fact, it wasn't even the end of his suffering. There would be a great deal more of that that would come to him. But instead of letting those moments empty him of his faith, in these losses, these, these, these horrible circumstances, they, they grew his faith. On his way overseas to meet up with his grieving wife, he penned these words for the very first time. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to know it is well, it is well with my soul. He knew that God was teaching him, even in the most raw and painful experience of his life, These are the moments in life that we would never wish for. I would never wish for these things to happen to you. You would never wish for them to happen to me. But they are powerful to drive us to the grace and the security of our only refuge and defense. And it's in this way that God gives faith to the faithless. And the passage continues to unfold. And what we learn next as we study is that faith then begins to form obedience Faith then forms obedience. God desires to instill this faith, this dependence into us through trial, and that faith then gives birth to obedient lives. After God makes the bitter water sweet, and we'll circle back to that a little bit later, but after he makes the bitter water sweet for them, Israel has something to drink. The story pauses for this very important statement that God has to make. Verse 25 and 26 There the Lord issued a ruling and instruction for them and put them to the test. He said, if you listen carefully to the Lord your God and to what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands and keep all his decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. The call on the people is very clear. God is saying to them, obey me, listen to my voice, heed my instruction. This statement acts as an introduction to the entire second half of the book of Exodus. Most scholars in some form, just to give you an idea here, most scholars split up the book of Exodus into two big parts, if you're thinking bird's eye view here. The first 15 chapters are showing that Yahweh is making himself known as Israel's deliverer. The second half of the book, Yahweh is making himself through Sinai and the covenant, he's making himself known as Israel's master as their Lord, as their commander. They go from slavery in Egypt to being bound in service and worship to Yahweh. This this statement is introducing this next big theme. It's as as if to, to say, okay, Israel, you've been freed. You've been freed by God, but now it's time to learn to follow God. You've been freed, now it's time to learn to follow. And between these two halves of the book, freed and learning to follow, God becoming their deliverer and God becoming their master and their Lord, we get these wilderness narratives. They're just right in the middle. 
This confuses a lot of people, but stay with me here for a second. I have a point. The wilderness narratives primarily draw from this theme of testing, right? God is building faith. He's building faith. He's building trust into his people. It's very significant that these texts come before the second half of the book, the covenant and the call to worship and obey God. It's, as almost, it's almost as if the author is telling us that this growing in faith has to be the foundation for the obedience that God's people are being called to. Faith has to be the foundation for the obedience that people are being called to. God is preparing them for the covenant. He's preparing them for Sinai. How is he doing this? By building faith. It's out of a faithful heart of trust in God, believing everything that he reveals himself to be in his words and in his deeds that Israel can then, and only then, begin to walk in obedience. That's what the Lord calls them to, and that's the way forward. And, and it's true for us that that is the way forward. You, can't, you can try as hard as you want in your life to be a good person, but all, all of that trying, all that w- it will get to you, all that it will get for you is either an insincere righteousness or a flagrantly sinful life. Those are the only things that come from human trying. Unless we behold God's glory and trust and embrace who he reveals himself to be. When we chase righteousness in any other way, we're being independent, not dependent. We're counting on ourselves. We're trusting in our own abilities to shine ourselves up and make ourselves better. It doesn't work that way. We read from James 1 earlier. I want to circle back, read it again, and keep going. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. We can be joyful in our trials. Why? Because God is testing and building faith and steadfastness. Why is this a good thing? And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. As we walk steadfast in faith, holding on to the right things, the effect will be growing in righteousness. The effect of that will be a completeness of character as we're being formed into the image of Christ. And it all begins with belief. It all begins with faith and a worshipful heart. Out of a committed love for his people... God is doing whatever he has to do to build up and create this kind of obedient, righteous life. And I want you to know, God cares infinitely more about cultivating that in you than he does about how comfortable you are in this life. He cares way more about building these things up in you than he does about making you comfortable Sometimes he brings us through unimaginably uncomfortable seasons in life so that we learn this impulse that God is trying to teach Israel. We learn the impulse, even in the worst of times, to turn to him, to cry out constantly in desperation. And when we do, the power of the Spirit, the joy of our salvation drives us to live righteously, to be obedient. God doesn't call us to obedience apart from faith because he knows that we would never obey that way. So how do you pursue obedience to Christ in your life when it gets difficult? 
How do you do it? Ask yourself that question. Are you resting in your own inherent goodness or are you living a life of constant humility and dependence upon God? Calling on the Lord to be your refuge, to be your guide, to be your hope, to be your deliverer because you know in those moments of weakness you don't have what it takes and he is good. One will get you nowhere, the other will transform you in every way. So the, so faith is what grows obedience. Obedience and transformation is the next step for God's people, but if it's going to happen successfully, it must be rooted in faith, trust, and worship. In the Lord's statement that we've read to Israel, we can not only see the call to that kind of obedience that's formed by faith, but we can also see that when we have this kind of faith and obedience, it ultimately brings blessing. It ultimately brings blessing. Yahweh's instruction isn't just a command, it's a conditional statement. Listen, if you listen, you listen carefully to the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to the commands and keep all his decrees, then I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. This is a foreshadowing in the covenant stipulations that are going to come to the people of God. Yahweh, who is their healer, will be a healer to them as long as they live faith-filled and obedient lives. If they remain this way, God will not destroy them. He will heal them. God gives an implicit warning in this statement. He wants Israel to look back over their shoulder to see the destruction of Egypt and to know that that's what the justice of God looks like. That's what remains for those who reject him with impunity. This is a healthy fear of the Lord. To know that he's a holy God, a God in front of whom we all stand, unjust sinners. But he will be a healer to those who believe in his name and follow his voice. I hope this invokes some of the same holy fear in us as it was meant to in the heart of Israel. Now you may be sitting here looking at this passage thinking, wait a minute, something doesn't add up here. Because Israel is experiencing the blessing of God, but they failed, right? God gives this conditional statement, Israel fails and God's blessing them. What's going on? Israel fails repeatedly, and it's true. In some sense, the whole general history of Israel's relationship with God throughout the Old Testament is one of failure that ends, that, that ends with them being shipped off into exile in Babylon, away from the presence of God without a proper return before Christ. What's even scarier is that you may be sitting here thinking about yourself. I know for a fact that I lose faith in the same way that Israel loses faith. I can remember many moments where I haven't been able to see past my circumstances and cry out to the God of my salvation, and instead I get lost in despair. I'm a grumbler, right? Whoops. It's a bad thing. If you don't think that about yourself, you're lying to yourself, because this is all of us. Those who know me well know that there are certain things in my life in particular 
where I can be a very faithless and self-sufficient man, and it's deadly. It only leads to bad things, and thinking about this can lead you, leave you wondering whether or not you've wronged God too many times for him to truly be your healer. You can sit and look at, at <clears throat> the way God speaks to his people Israel and think, have I wronged God too many times? Have I been sitting in despair for too long? Have I lost the favor of God? And it is true that Israel never really lived up to this charge that Yahweh makes. And yet, and I think this is the important part, God doesn't destroy them. He doesn't destroy them. I mean, you can think about this passage as a sort of a microcosm of the covenant relationship with God and Israel at work. God saves them. They head into the wilderness. They almost immediately lose their faith and grumble against God, failing him at the very nearest opportunity. And what does God do? What does he do? Let me read from verse 24. So the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What are we to drink? And Moses cried out to Yahweh, and Yahweh showed him a piece of wood, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. And then after Yahweh gives that statement we were just talking about, the passage ends this way. Then they came to Elam, where there were 12 springs and 70 palm trees, and they camped there near the water. So what does this tell us about the larger scope of God's relationship with his people? It tells us that his grace overcomes our failures. His grace overcomes our failures. His grace is so much bigger than we could ever understand. Look at what he does for his people despite their failures. He not only gives them the sweet water, but he leads them in the desert to 12 springs and 70 palm trees. And these numbers, they're not insignificant either. The 12 springs are meant as the number 12 normally is to signify the 12 tribes of Israel coming to the Lord's provision. And the number 70 is used to demarcate many times in the Pentateuch, the saving work of God among the Gentile nations. You can think back to the table of nations that, that's listed in Genesis containing 70 different reference to Gentile peoples. This whole scene is a picture of how big God's grace really is. Not only are Israel's needs being temporarily met, they're, they're being given this unimaginable abundance, and it's a reflection the entire time, symbolizing the kind of salvation that God is building towards, where one day the people of Israel and the nations will come to him in faith and experience the gracious provision of the Almighty God forever. That's what's in view here. This is how big God is. Israel doesn't even understand the significance of this just yet, but this is how big God is, that even in the failure of his people, he doesn't destroy them, though he could, and he would be just to do so. Instead, he is patient, long-suffering, providing for them anyways. And this is how God deals with us. That hasn't changed. God has not changed in our faithlessness and disobedience, in our stubbornness and hardness of heart. He does not abandon us to ourselves, but his steadfast, pursuing love stays with us and blesses us. It is right, it is right 
for us to gaze upon the holiness of God and fear him. But we do it with confidence that he loves us and he will not abandon us. Even in our weakness. But how can we be sure about this? How can, how can we be sure that this is the God we serve? How can we count on such, such a precious thing? Israel failed to be what God called them to be at times, and God's discipline fell upon them for it. But in the end, there was one promised who would bear the iniquity of God's people. There was one promised, a seed, a seed of, of, from Adam that would crush the head of the serpent One of the more staggering parallels in the Gospels comes to us as we reach the story of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. Do you remember this from the Gospel of Matthew? Jesus comes into the wilderness, uh, he's driven into the wilderness, we're told, after his baptism in the Jordan River. this, This follows the exact same pattern of God's people in Exodus. Israel emerges from, from these, uh, the waters of baptism in, in Moses in the Red Sea and, and are driven into the wilderness, just the same as Jesus. Israel's wilderness lasts 40 years, their wanderings. Jesus' wanderings last 40 days. This is an explicit um, reference that, that Matthew is making. He's connecting these two things. And at every turn, what we see in these wilderness wanderings is Israel failing to believe or to follow God. Jesus, on the other hand, refuses to believe or follow anyone but his Father. Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy. He quotes the words of Scripture, and he refuses to leave them. As a representative Israel, he remains faithful. Hebrews 4 tells us this. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. That's Jesus. What does this mean? Why is this important for us? The author of Hebrews continues, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. How can we count on the grace of God? How can we count on the mercy of God? How can we count on the help and the goodness of God? What gives us that confidence? It's because we have a high priest. It's because Jesus is faithful. I don't deserve the kindness or the patience of God. You don't deserve the kindness or the patience of God. But we have it anyways. Why? Because Jesus deserves it. We have it because Jesus' obedience has become ours. He is our federal head. He is our atonement. He is our high priest. We share his worthiness because of the simple fact, listen, that he loved us. It's the only reason. Because he loved us. God's grace toward us is bigger than we know and far often Uh, far more often in our moments and our circumstances where we're feeling pain and trial and struggle, we don't see that. We don't see God as being merciful or compassion. We don't see his grace. It's hard to believe in the worst of circumstances. You may feel right now, for whatever reason, that you're in a place of wilderness, 
that you're drinking bitter waters. And if you don't feel that way right now, you will. It's only a matter of time. This is a common experience for all of us. But let me ask you, where are your eyes? What are they being drawn to? Is your heart filled with despair because your eyes are drawn to your problems, your circumstances, the issues that you're dealing with, or are you gazing at the Redeemer who never changes, whose saving grace is always the same, who gives abundantly greater than you could ever need? Could it be that in the situation that you're dealing with right now, that God is teaching and training your heart to do what is most important for you, to believe him, to believe he is who he says he is, to rest in his goodness. I would say if you're a child of God, he is doing that in you. He is. Because the Lord disciplines, trains, builds into the ones he loves. So my invitation to you this morning is just so simple. Come see the Redeemer. Come see your Savior. Cry out to him. He's waiting to draw you in in those moments. He's waiting to show you just how big and beautiful he is. Will you take your eyes off of your circumstances? Will you look to the God who saves? Let's pray. Father, this is a message that I suspect many of us have heard many times. That you are faithful, that you are full of grace, that you love us, that you are for us. But God, there's, there's a difference between knowing these things and, and really embracing them, believing them. And when the rubber hits the road and we are, we are confronted with circumstances that just tear us apart, it can be incredibly difficult to hold on to these things. So God, I pray that we wouldn't just be like Israel, believing you when we see you do good things and grumbling against you when you're not grumbling against you when we can't see that. God, may it always be the impulse of our heart to turn to you and recognize who you are, that you don't change even when our circumstances do. We're crying out to you as your children, recognizing that we're sinful, that we're broken, that we're stubborn. But Holy Spirit, we know you have the ability and the desire to change us transform us and so we look to you Lord Jesus expecting that you will be faithful to us calling upon who you are and what your good purposes are in this world to build your kingdom to build your church God be with us and we ask these things boldly with the confidence knowing that that you are our high priest who has enabled us to come to the throne of grace. But at the same time, God, we ask these things because we want you to be made much of in our lives. We want the people in our lives and those around us to see your strength when we are weak, 
to see your goodness when, when we can't see past our circumstances. God, we want the world to know you as the God who saves. They know that, and they can know that from the scriptures, but they can also know that from our lives and the way that we relate to you. And so, God, change us, transform us so that you can save this world, we pray, and glorify your name. In Jesus' name, amen.